Well, here we are again. This is Dick Foth with stories to make sense of it all. Last week, we had a podcast with my friend Kirk Foster and his wonderful wife, Leah. Airborne Ranger, United States Army, deployed, I think, 20 times over these last years. I've known him since he was 23. He's now 37. Married now with three children. And we were talking about life is a fight. It is a journey, but life is also a fight. And he, being uniformed military, uh, just wanted to honor and be grateful for the folks who have allowed us the privilege of being able to do podcasts like this without fear of reprisal. So that was last week. This week, I wanted to talk to his mom. She was in the room at the time we did last week's podcast and the interview with Kirk and Leah, and her name is Elaine Foster. When I think of moms, I automatically go to my own, of course, who uh, passed away a number of years ago at the age of 100. And uh, she was a feisty lady, a good lady. And Elaine Foster is cut of that same cloth. But when I think biblically of a mother, one of the persons that I go to most readily is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And there's very interesting, she was mom, you know, in her teen years, probably. And there's a very interesting story and account of Mary and Joseph taking Jesus for Passover up from Nazareth to Jerusalem. Whole village, I'm sure, was going. Tens of thousands of people are there in the city. He's 12 years old and they lose him. You know, I, I don't blame them really. I don't think it's too tough to lose a 12-year-old in a very interesting place. But they didn't realize they had lost him for a couple of days until they were on their way home and they went back and found him. And uh, this was the account. This is found in Luke's gospel, verse 43. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. You say, why did it take three days? This is both. Why did it take three days? Well, you know, you're looking for him down by the creek. You're looking for him if they had anything like a soccer field. But not the temple, but there he is. Everyone who heard him was amazed because after three days they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, and you can create your own tone for this if you're a mom, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why are you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house, capital F? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Uh, Moms ponder a lot of things in their heart. Moms think about us children 
in ways that probably we fathers don't think about them. And it's that intensity and that intimate nurturing that really is a profound thing. So last week I spoke to two warriors, as I put it, both Kirk, who went literally into battle, and Leah, who stayed at home with her own fights to fight and uh, fight through some things. And then there's the mom, who also is a warrior in her own right. And I say that not just because she is a mother by gifting, but in her professional life, she is a teacher by calling. She teaches little people. And I want to start there. I asked Elaine, when, when did you know you were a teacher or wanted to be? When I was in second grade, I wanted to be a teacher because my teacher at that time was not very nice. And I thought, well, I want to be a nice teacher. So then by the time I was in eighth grade, I was teaching two-year-olds in Sunday school. And then I went to, to university to get my teaching degree. And I got done as quickly there as I could because that wasn't where I wanted to be. I wanted to be in my own classroom. So, so let me just jump in here. So here's G.I. Joe over here, who knows he wants to be a soldier when he's a kid. And now you know you want to be a teacher when you're, maybe it's in the DNA that you decide early, because we have a, lots of people who, as the common phrase is, who have failure to launch in these days, because they have so many options, so many opportunities. But you knew early. I knew early. And it wasn't because you had a great teacher. No. It's because you had a bad teacher. Because I had a bad teacher. Well, that's teacher. an interesting approach. And, um, and I, I hear what you're saying because I've heard that over and over. Very few people know at a young age and then continue to pursue that until they're older and actually follow that dream, if you will, of becoming yeah. that person that you want it to be. So, right. yeah, it doesn't happen very often. Um But I was one of the few. And then when I did get into teaching, I taught uh, a couple of years before we started having our family. And then when we had our family, I stepped away for a little bit. And then I started going back part-time, even when our kids were little, just to kind of keep my foot in the door and kept my teaching license current, taking the classes I needed to every five years to keep my license current. And then gradually worked back into it more and more as the kids got older, so that by the time they were all gone, I was back to teaching full-time. So what age levels generally did you teach? So I've taught um, preschool, so pre-K. I've taught gifted and talented, kindergarten through sixth grade. And I've taught uh, classroom, second, third, and fourth. Do you have a favorite? Um, you like it all, obviously. I but, like it but all. But is there a sweet spot for you? I think third grade is third grade. is just... That's when they used to teach cursive. Oh, I love teaching Do cursive. Do we still teach cursive where you are? In second grade now. Second grade. But there are a lot of places don't teach cursive. No, right? because... And as I tried to explain to parents, the reason we still teach cursive is so that you have a signature. I was going to say, how do you say... <laughs> we're we're going to go back to the big X and little X. Here. Well, and, and someday you may not... You don't really need to have a signature. When you sign with your finger, it doesn't really matter this, what this it looks like. Wow. So, yeah. My goodness. So... There's a sense in which educators, such as yourself, you are teaching, they're hopefully learning, you're doing all these creative things so they can have a range in their lives and grow and be productive citizens and all of that. But there's a very real sense in which you, like your son, have to be a fighter. 
Here's my question. When you're in the classroom, what is it that you're fighting for? Mm, that is so hard. <laughs> because you want, <laughs> you want the kids to have a joy for learning and for being alive. And, and sometimes that's taken away from them because of circumstances surrounding their lives and the schools. And so to be able to continue having that love and joy and laughter and desire to be there in the classroom, that's what we're fighting for, that they want to be there, they want to learn, they want to um, find out new and different things, not just from the Internet, not just because of what's happening in their lives, but because it's, it's fun and there's so much to learn and explore. And so as a teacher, I'm fighting for that joy to be in the classroom all the time. That statement is fascinating to me, that here's a teacher, and many teachers, I'm sure, are like this, that they want joy of learning and with learning, through learning, <laughs> to be the, the end point, the goal, and the motivation for why we want to learn. Uh, I got to tell you, I had some teachers along the way that I, I don't think I'm not sure they had much joy because they weren't bringing much to me. <laughs> and I just uh, was struck by that. And I'd like to parenthetically just drop another little chat in here. And I'll come back to Elaine in just a moment. But I have a friend, Barb Melby, who's for several decades been an early childhood teacher here in Northern Colorado. And I just called her up and said, talk to me about what's going on in that little person's brain. And she talked just for a few moments with me about that and described how when parents and teachers encourage little people, it ignites certain things in them. Here it is. Just ignite in them some of these exciting things that come with being independent. So some of the first ones are just their their experiences with trust as they go out into their own world and with their peers. Who can I trust? What can I trust them for? And love. Do people love me? Do they like me? Do I like myself? Do I like other people? And how do I go about expressing that? Do I learn to express kindness? Can I express empathy with kids who are in need? How do I express anger in an appropriate way? All those things really take off during this uh, preschool experience, this age of three to five. They also learn what their world looks like through their own filters, not necessarily through their parents or their caregivers. So they learn, what can I do with my world? How do I experiment with things? How do I problem solve? I'm expanding your imagination, living in fantasy worlds with play. So when I'm in that classroom, as a little person with Barb Melby or a little later with Elaine Foster, and you bring up play, I'm all over that. I, you know, I think, I think play is one of God's great gifts to the human race, and Barb expanded on that. Play is so important to develop these things because it gives them an opportunity each day to try things out, to see what happens, to expand the, even the physical things they're learning how to do. They learn to do those with peers, they learn to do it with caregivers, and then they learn to do it by themselves. Kids uh, throughout all of their education experience obviously have very important teachers and then teachers who may not impact them quite as much. But even you talk to a lot of 
middle school and elementary, I mean, and high school kids, and they'll talk to you about their favorite coach or their favorite teacher. Having someone to expand a world for them means that they might have a greater experience with those things. And I think expanding a world for a three to five-year-old is limitless because they are just starting out and this is their first experience at it. One of my favorite quotes is from Albert Einstein. It says, imagination is more important than knowledge because imagination has no limits. And in that age group, they know how to do that. Their brains are developing. They're doing a lot of physical coordination developing. So all those things are laid upon that foundation of self-confidence, their own delight in learning, their uh, excitement about uh, seeing new things happen. All those things as they're opened up to them encourage them to have a greater imagination, to actually develop skills that will be their reading and their math and their science skills, figuring out how to solve problems, things like that. If that's a joy to them, then they're, you know, sky's the limit. There's that joy word again. Teachers like Elaine Foster and Barbell are bringers of joy. Joy seems to be the operative word, that set of wings that allows the sky to be the limit. I had another conversation. And again, we, we live in a time when our nation is convulsing at certain levels and for significant reasons. And I'm trying to get my mind around that, much like you might be. But I talked to a friend who lives in Washington, D.C., and she's a professor, so she's not early childhood. She's up in graduate education. She's been teaching law at the University of Virginia, and she is now the dean-elect, if I can use it that way. Uh, As of August 1st, she will be the dean at George Washington University Law School. Her name is Dana Matthew, and she is the first female dean of the law school, And she's the first African-American dean of the law school. She has a wonderful heart for children and a wonderful heart for people having access to learning. I would submit that she would make a case for accessing joy. And this is how she talked to me about it just a couple of days ago are able to provide for children in their first six years of life is going to determine what their health is going to be, what their mental health is going to be, what their physical health, what their emotional health, what their cognitive health is going to be. And there are people far more qualified than I to talk about that. But the other area I'd like to really drill in on is making it possible for children in their early years to be educated in integrated racially and socioeconomically integrated settings because these are the years in which children develop their attitudes about other people their attitudes are being formed about social interaction the ability to see others as respected humans the ability to be a part of communities that are not only filled with people who look like them, but people who don't. 
And if we can begin to develop those social networks early on, then I think we set the stage not only for healthy bodies, but healthy minds and healthy social interaction as well. I have one word to say to that, Dana. Are you ready? I'm ready. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So with those two little conversations, as a larger context for learning and for life, I want to come back to my friend Elaine, who apparently is more than a wife, mom, grandma, and teacher. She is a joy giver, a promoter of right hearts and attitudes, and social networking for Pete's sake. I thought she was just a teacher, and just a teacher, is the understatement of the year. So tell me one more time, Elaine, what it is you want for the children you teach. That they feel loved, that they feel secure, that they feel that I am there for them, that things aren't going to change from day to day, that my consequences are still my consequences. We're out in the world. They don't know. And for loads of kids today, sometimes the classroom is the most stable part of their life. So when, when you say, I want my kids to be able to count on that my classroom is a place of joy, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a pretty profound statement on the one hand, but weighty on the other. You, you feel the weight of that, obviously. I do. I really feel that. They come in with so much baggage, if you will. Right. There There's so many troubled families and situations and... And with all the you know news and the media of what's going on in schools, that's so scary. I mean, we have to be so prepared to deal with everything. We have tornado drills. We have fire drills. We have lockdown drills. We have lockout drills. We have drills for just about everything so that they feel safe. But yet practicing those makes them scared out of their wits. Sure. So I have to, as we're practicing all these drills... Make sure that we're calm, and it's because we're going to be safe, and we're going to not let things hurt us. That's why we're doing this. And so the fight is different in that way, is that we're trying to stay calm. Uh-huh. and. So you're, you're trying to take, stay calm in a crazy world, yep. if you will. Mm-hmm. And it isn't just the world, it's their world, it's right? their it's world. Every little universe mm-hmm. represented by an 8-year-old or a 7-year-old or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because when I talked to your boy, he said one of the biggest things that has helped him is his capacity to prepare. And he talked about his dad being a builder because I brought <laughs> I brought your husband up as a builder and who who loves design and preparation. There's a sense in which you and your husband are alike in that regard. Is that the amount of preparation <laughs> that it takes to build a house or build a person? It's not either inconsequential or very different from each other, is it? That's very true now that you mention it. Um, I just thought of that. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I just thought of that. Because yeah. not only am, am <laughs> we're planning our our drills and our safety, but we're planning our lessons that we actually have to teach in the middle so, of all of this. Yeah. yeah, we have curriculum to follow, and our curriculum has expanded, so we're teaching anti-bullying curriculum, we're teaching character ed, we're teaching um, all these other aspects. It's not just math and science and social studies, which I love to teach. So it isn't reading, writing, reading, writing no. arithmetic. Now it's reading, writing, arithmetic plus anti-bullying. 
and just survival in the real world. Yeah, that's crazy. Within a classroom, their yeah. real world. Wow. Mm-hmm. If you were to go back in your career, in your life, and change one thing or say, I wish I could do that again or do that particular piece in a different way. Is there something, anything that comes to mind? And you don't have to have an answer to this. Um, The only thing that really comes to mind is I loved having my kids at home. And I was always sad when school started. And so fall, school starting as a teacher is never... It's always more of a sad time when I think, oh, I had to send my kids back because I loved being with them all day during the summer. So maybe I would, uh, if I could change something, I'd hang on to them a little bit longer, <laughs> hang on to my own kids, <laughs> and that's and not worry so much about all the other kids out there. But I, I love a, all yeah. the kids I've worked with. I have, a, I have a friend who said that when her boys graduated high school, she felt like she was out of a job. Hmm. And there's a little, a little, little bit of sense that. of that. A little bit of that. So I've talked to your son, I've talked to your daughter-in-law, and each of them has talked about a faith part mm-hmm. of their life. When you, when you look at your life and how faith plays into what you do, or how you think about what you do, talk to me about that. Well, I think prayer is a, is a big part of it. I know that prayer is the way I got through multiple deployments and prayer is how I handle my classroom I pray for every child in my classroom the summer before and then each day as as I learn more about them but during the summer before I would pray for each of the children in my classroom and praying over my family every morning when I first wake up Mm. and just having that faith that the Lord I couldn't be there with Kirk, for example, when he is deployed. I couldn't be there, but I knew the Lord was there. Mm -hmm. And I love him a whole lot, but the Lord loved him even more, even more than I could ever possibly love him. So I just had to turn him over, each one of my kids over, and my kids' uh, spouses, and now all these little grandkids, and then my classroom as well, Mm -hmm. that there are things I didn't know how to respond to and how to work with. So praying over my classroom every morning before I walked in there or during the day when I was in there and playing praise music for them as their calm music. I had some instrumental praise music. Just having that faith that just subtle ways in the classroom that their needs well, were and being met. And this isn't, a, this isn't a religious or parochial oh, school. It's a public school. Public so your instrument, instruments are neutral, right, I mean, in that sense. The, I think if I'm hearing correctly, and and we'll wrap this up. If I'm hearing correctly, in the in the fight for freedom, whether it's a physical fight for freedom, on battlefields far and wide, or whether it's the intellectual, emotional, spiritual fights for freedom, in a classroom or in a home, of someone who's deployed, uh, the the. Two things that have popped up as I've listened are that that the weapons in the fight are uh, are faith and and faith operationalized. I don't know if that's a word. <laughs> Good word. <laughs> <laughs> is found in prayer. Mm-hmm. You know, my my friend Lloyd Ogilvy, who was who was um, chaplain of the United States Senate for eight years, he said that the the prayer that God always answers. Saint or sinner, 
is when one just calls out, God help me. Mm-hmm. He always responds to that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I just find it a great honor to sit with a family, at least three members of a family, <laughs> who find themselves in the good fight, in a, in a good battle for uh, things that are true and right and just to sense how you handle that because life is a journey but it's also a fight and to be able to say at the end of the day with Paul the Apostle I have fought the good fight I think that's a that's not a bad thing to have on one's tombstone or in one's heart <laughs> I have fought the good fight yeah. mama thanks for talking to me you're welcome I have to tell you when I speak with someone like Elaine Foster and educators like we've heard, I'm inspired. I'm so grateful for the teachers in our communities, in our land, who have sacrificed to fight to teach so that they can help children, little ones, medium ones, and big ones, learn to fight to learn. There is something about bringing joy because you unlock people's doors or give them places to stand so they can experience life and God's grace and friendships and the joy of walking through life with heads held high. It's just a profound thing. So, one more time. Life may be a journey, but it's also a fight. And I pray for you who are listening, that for your families, for the little people and the medium people and the big people who are in classrooms across these United States, that they would have teachers who bring joy because that's an end game. God bless you. Catch you next week when we'll hopefully have more stories to make sense of it all.